Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR. Very happy to be returning today for the fifth in our special series on European sovereignty. This week we are coming back to the whole question of economic sovereignty and we're going to start with a big debate which was unleashed uh, a couple of weeks ago when the German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas published an article in Handelsblatt talking about a new framework for transatlantic relations, for a more balanced relationship uh, across the Atlantic. And he laid out a number of specific ideas, one of which was the idea of a European payment system which uh, is something we talked about in the earlier podcast on economic sovereignty as one of the things which has come up as a result of the debate about uh, secondary sanctions uh, on Iran and the American attempt to undermine the JCPOA or Iran nuclear deal. I have two all-star experts to help us make sense of this. Um, first up, we have uh, someone who's new to the podcast, Mark Schieritz, who is the economics correspondent of the very prestigious German weekly newspaper, Die Zeit, um, who's been writing a lot about this, both opinion pieces, but also has been doing some incredible reporting about the debates in Germany. And back to the podcast yet again is Sebastian Dulin, our economics supremo, who is also joining us from Berlin down the line. So, Mark, maybe I can go to you uh, first, and it'd be great if you could lay out um, some of your thinking um, around this whole question of, uh, of the payment system. You wrote a really interesting article um, recently called VEC from Dollar, which is um, uh, looking at the whole question of, of the, uh, the tyranny of the dollar system, I suppose, and what Europe can do to escape from it. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, there's certainly a feeling um, in, in all um, quarters of the government, I, I, I'd say, um, that there is a problem with an overly um, high um, dependency on um, US dollar transactions and the US dollar as a, as a medium of foreign exchange. And generally, um, a feeling that um, there is a dominance of economic dominance of the US that, that might uh, have an impact on European sovereignty. And I think this is new. It's important to realize that this is quite a new development here um, on, the, uh, on the political side. Um, Maas came out with this article. Um, I would say he's the, he's the main figure here promoting more independence. Um, of course, as soon as we talk about concrete measures and steps, um, it gets very tricky and very difficult. Um, because where on the on the one hand you have the desire to become more independent financially in order to increase European sovereignty, but on the other hand, of course, um, you have this fear of completely undermining the transatlantic relation. And if you look at the German government, I would say there are two poles. There's the one pole of the of people saying no, 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 let's go, let's go full in, let's risk everything, we have to go ahead now. And there are others who say, you know, wait a minute, don't let's oh, don't 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 be too quick. Maybe Donald Trump is just an anomaly, and in two years we will back to the normal relation. So let's not destroy the infrastructure that has benefited um, the globe in in recent in the, in the, in the past in the in the past Second World uh, War area. So I'd like to come back to the German politics on it. And in, your, in one of your articles recently, you, you look at the reactions in the chancellery, in the economics ministry and in other places. But maybe before we go into the politics, we can start with the, with the substance. Um, and uh, 
I don't know whether Sebastian or you want to kind of start with the, this question about why um, the initial focus is on this question of, uh, of a of a silence canal or a payment system. Maybe I can say a few words on that. Um, I mean, we have we have seen the past sanctions of the United States that they have used the SWIFT system, which is a system by which uh, banks nationally uh, exchange information, has been used by the United States to enforce sanctions. So because this is now at the moment the predominant system with which banks communicate, if you cut a bank off this system, it basically doesn't exist anymore for the rest of the world. So this is a very powerful tool. In the past, this has been used by the US. Um, it wasn't a problem as long as we were all on the same page and we wanted to impose sanctions on the same countries. But it becomes really a problem uh, if we don't want to impose sanctions on a country and the US wants and they start using this payment system to cut cut a country off because then it becomes very difficult for us to, to have transactions with that country. And given that not everybody who listens to the podcast, not even everyone who's speaking on the podcast, is uh, has the kind of uh, high levels of financial expertise that the two of you could uh, uh, have, could one of you just explain very uh, in simple terms, what is a payment system? Um, <clears throat> why uh, does it matter in terms of uh, the global economy? Um, and you know what does SWIFT actually do? Well, in this in the SWIFT context, I think to be more precise, SWIFT isn't isn't really a payment system. It's basically it's a messaging system. So if you are sitting in Germany and you want to send money to someone in the in the UK, say, um, then what? Well, you go to your bank, and what your bank does, your bank sends a, a message, an email, whatever it is, to the bank in the UK. Wait a minute, um, we, there will be uh, five thousand euros or pounds will come to this account. Please credit this account. And the banks use SWIFT in order to exchange messages. And of course, it sounds simple, but of course, it's not because there are millions of message, messages each day and they are high security. And, you know, it's very, very important that no one can access them. So it's a very um, computer technology um, challenge. And this is what SWIFT does. And it has a, a near monopoly on cross-border transactions um, in, this, uh, in this context. So um, you really need to use it if you want to send money abroad. And what, what, we see, uh, what we are seeing now is that the U.S. Um, is threatening to cut off, or, uh, the U.S. is trying to force SWIFT, which is a Belgian company, European company, to force SWIFT to cut off banks um, domiciled in Iran from the system. Why is it so difficult for other people to set up their payment systems? Why don't the Chinese or the Russians or others just develop their own versions of SWIFT if they're worried that the U.S. could cut them off? It's, it's sort of a natural monopoly, right? So you, you don't want to have, if you have 20 different payment systems then the, or messaging system, then the very idea of a messaging system, you have someone where you can reach to, all of, uh, to every country in the world, um, it doesn't work anymore. So it has to be a, a system that covers uh, most banks that are on, or most countries um, we have in the world. And so uh, it's very difficult to build up this infrastructure twice because it already exists. So you need to get all the banks on the table you know, you get you get regulators on the table in order to build up a, a global system. So that's very difficult. It's very costly, and um, this is why you can't just do it this from one day to another. I mean, plus plus. I mean, you you have to to be aware that banks don't have an interest to sign up to to all these messaging systems. I mean, you have one which works. Why should uh, Sparkasse in Berlin um, accept or a second message system from from the Russians? 
where there are just a limited number of Russian banks maybe on to begin with. I mean, you wouldn't want to have 20 telephones at home. Uh, depending who you want to call, you need to use a different phone. And it's very difficult if you have a mobile phone with which you can reach everyone. If someone wants to convince you that you should get a second subscription on a, on a different phone network where you only can reach two people. Okay. So the next question people are asking is because Swift um, gets talked about a lot, but is actually a European company that's based in Belgium. So why uh, can the US tell them what to do? Well, they they can't basically. So um, Swift has to follow European law. So if the European authorities decided to tell Swift to not cut off um, Iranian banks, then Swift would not be able to cut off Iranian banks. They have to follow European law. Um, there could be otherwise sanctions and even prison time, whatever you can imagine there. So SWIFT has to follow European law. The question then really is, does the EU um, dare to use European law in order to force SWIFT to not cut off uh, Iranian banks? And, and there we are in the area of politics, right? So what can the US credibly um, threaten to do to the Europeans if they do not follow um, the US desire to cut the Iranian banks off? And then, it, then, it, then we're getting the mess in, in the in the area of you know how how uh, what can hurt Europe, what will hurt the U.S., and how does this play out? But, but legally, uh, legally, the U.S. has no authority over Swift. It's a European company. So, Sebastian, maybe you can answer that question. What are they threatening? Well, I mean, what they have done in the past, um, and what they are threatening again, is that if uh, Swift wouldn't confirm, then um, they might go after the individual board members of Swift. And those board members are board members of important banks. Some of them, not the majority, but some of them US Americans. Some others board members who would like to continue doing business in the US or at least go uh, on vacation or on conferences in the US. And so what they are basically threatening is uh, to, to go after them personally if they do not confer, if they, they, they do not follow the, the US orders, um, yeah, that they could be arrested when they when they leave the plane in, in the US. So this is what they're, they're doing at the moment, uh, or threatening to do um, if there are transactions related to Iran. But there are also, there are other, uh, so this is just an information system, but Mars talks about a payment system as well. And I think that's another question which people have been talking about, that a lot of banks are worried about having uh, dealings with Iran and with other countries because they uh, do a lot of transactions in dollars and there is also a threat of cutting them off from the dollar system. Can you explain that a bit more as well? First, on, um, on I mean, before we move to the payment aspect, I think what is important in the, I mean, whether it's payment or messaging is what, what we have to talk about is how, how credible are these threats um, that people are not allowed in the U.S. or or, um, or are put, in, put in, into prison once they reach um, the U.S. And um, I, I, yeah, I think the important point is um, it is really a question of whether if the U.S. did that, how would the Europeans react? You know, is there some sort of balance of power um, that forces uh, that that reduces the credibility of any threat by the American administration? And um, I, I think there actually is, because if the U.S. threatened to um, indict, you know, board members of American banks, the Europeans might as well um, threaten to indict board members of American banks if they enter European um, territory. So, so we, have, we, are, we are there on a stage of where it is um, threat and counter threat, where in effect 
um, it could be the case that the threat and counter, counter threat are neutralizing each other and actually no one would really do anything if the Europeans decided to use their authority over SWIFT. So that's at least an, an open question. And uh, so I think it's important to keep that in mind, you know, um, how, do, how does that play out politically? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to come to that, but I think one of the reasons why I wanted to broaden the discussion a bit is because um, there has been speculation that some of these techniques that you just described being used against SWIFT, which is a private company, are even being used against um, people who are involved with public or semi-public bodies. For example, there was some talk about using the European Investment Bank as a vehicle to, to uh, allow uh, capital to be transferred to, to Iran, um, and the same with, with national central banks. And there's been speculation that the governors and boards of national central banks and of the European Investment Bank have also been threatened personally. And uh, the, the methodology is very similar, but presumably from a legal perspective or a political perspective, there is quite a big difference between a private company and the uh, obligations which European states have to private companies and those which they owe to, to their own civil servants, not least the presidents of, of national central banks, which are you know, the ultimate sovereign entity. Sebastian, do you want to talk a bit about, about, about that? And then we can maybe come back to this question about the escalation. Yeah, I mean, I think there are different levels here. If um, I think they would go after a private company, especially if it's a US American citizen, member of the SWIFT board, uh, probably they could get away with that quite, quite easily. Then SWIFT would probably have to think about replacing that member and taking some non-US member there. Uh, I think it's a step up in the escalation if, let's say, you, you take a CEO of a big uh, European bank and arrest that person or don't allow that person to come to the US, that's that's a bit more of a confrontation. And then the next step would be um, if you really go after, let's say, the head of a, of a central bank. Um, this really would be, yeah, th this hasn't been done in the past. Uh, to my knowledge, it hasn't even been done with the central bankers of Adolf Hitler when they helped him to finance the war effort because these, these people were off limits. Um, so this would be... Uh, they didn't have smart sanctions in those days. Potentially, there might be some people in the U.S. intelligence, the security community, foreign affairs community, who would, who would say, well, wait a second, what, what you're doing here, this might be a step too far, um, because this, this really would be the equivalent of a declaration of, of economic war here. Because I think that's maybe something which is worth, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, I just think, given how much you two know about these things and how loosely the terms get, uh, bandied around. I think it would be helpful to understand a bit more how the dollar system works and why this is such a big constraint on, on freedom of action to different players. But it will also be kind of interesting, and maybe we should do a separate podcast on that as well, to think about the evolution of, 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 of these kind of smart sanctions and more personalized sanctions, which is um, something which has uh, really taken off in the light of 9-11 of and the American war on terror. Uh, but it is quite surprising to see these tools which were designed to go after finances of terror organisations now being used against, potentially against European central banks. Um, it's quite a, a perversion of, of the original um, uh, goals of these, of these, of these tools. Yeah, but I mean, I think in the Trump narrative, um, the Bundesbank, if they deliver cash, millions of cash to the Iranians, they are basically doing something which, which feels like terror financing, at least from their point of view. For well, the, the the Europeans is just honoring your your business pledge, uh, but for the for for the U.S. Americans, um, or at least for some of them, it might look different. 
I think if you, I mean, because you asked about the dollar, so so we have the we have, we have Swift, the messaging system, as one of the instruments that Mars was talking about, and then of course we also have the the question of um, uh, of currencies, and and here of course what what he was referring to, and which is true, is that the dollar is by still um, uh, the, the 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 global currency of choice for many transactions, for I think sixty percent of all trade transactions. Uh, and even more for foreign exchange transactions. So basically, uh, you need to have U.S. dollars, or you need to exchange your currency in, into U.S. dollar if you want to be an, if you want to do business internationally. E even for even say if you wanted to exchange the South Korean won into the Swedish krona, um, you would use you would have to go to the dollar because there's no banks don't directly trade the krona against the bonds. They, they trade the won against the dollar and the dollar against the krona. So you need you really need um, access to the dollar as an international bank or as a major international company, and this this of course means um, because it's a U.S. Um, currency and it's uh, cleared and transacted by U.S. Uh, banks or uh, or the central bank. Um, you're basically doing business with an American citizen or American institution, and you could be um, and you and and you could be targeted with sanctions. And this is why one of the of the goals that uh, was talked about in this article by by, by the foreign minister. Is um, can we strengthen the euro, the euro as an international currency, and and there you know, we are getting into. Of course, you could do that in theory, um, and maybe Sebastian can talk more about it then. Uh, but that, of course, this is even more difficult than creating a second um, messaging system because it really needs to. It really uh, involves you know spreading the euro internationally, creating a, a sound and stable monetary union that everyone believes in will last forever. So this is really a, um, a historic task, but this is something that is also important in this context. Okay, so um, and what sorts of things could be done if you if one did want to move forward on that, Sebastian? Well, I mean, you, you have to understand that uh, being a key currency is not something you can enforce on other people, but you would have to create incentives. And uh, that would require that people in other countries are first willing to hold your currency for reserve purposes. That means they must be sure that it's crisis free, that they can sell it easily, they can buy it, that there's high liquidity here. And um, well, if we just start with this first question, is this crisis free? Can you be sure that this currency will be there in 50 years in the same way it is today? Uh, you definitely would say so for the US dollar, but uh, for the euro, we might not be that sure. Um, if, if you think about some discussions we are having in, in Europe. So the Europeans first have failed to, to really disperse the, 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 um, uh, the idea that, that the euro might, might break apart at some point. And second, the US has a very deep market for treasury bonds. We don't have that in Europe. Treasury bonds are risk-free. We don't have risk-free government assets in, in the euro area. You could argue that the German Bund uh, that this is a risk-free asset, um, but then you have not enough of them. Uh, probably not enough if everyone wanted to have risk-free assets in the eurozone. We see that because the interest rate is basically zero. It was negative for a while, and definitely not to to be a, a global um, reserve currency. Um, then you would need to move people away from doing transactions in dollar into doing transactions in euro. And you usually, once you have the infrastructure in place for dollar transactions it would come with additional costs. So you would have to provide some kind of incentive or regulatory incentive to, for, for banks and, and um, other countries to use it. Um, and this is huge. You would really have to put up a strategy if you wanted to do that. Um, 
that being said, it comes with some side effects, uh, which the US and Britain have experienced in the past. If you are a reserve currency, people want to hold your currency, that creates appreciation pressure to your currency and uh, leads to loss of competitiveness and uh, ultimately probably to loss of industrial base. And this is something which would be very difficult to accept for the Germans especially. So we're back to the German question of whether Germany is willing to, to trade sovereignty for being an export Weltmeister. I mean, the, the, the point here is um, how much of economic benefits is Germany going to give up uh, of its current economic model in order to, to get the sovereignty here? I mean, this is the whole question. Um, uh, we, we interact a lot with the Americans, with the American economy. That gives us benefits. All the things we have proposed here, sanctions, counter sanctions, uh, also creating new payment system that comes with some cost. It gets away from the efficient way we are having now. So this, uh, th there's a trade-off. As long as we have the interest aligned with the US, uh, there's no need to, to do that. Um, if, it's, if they pull apart, we have, might have to rethink that. So that's one of the really interesting questions about the Iran debate, that Iran, for people like me um, and uh, a lot of foreign policy professionals, is a really important topic. Nuclear weapons are involved, the stability of the most combustible region in the world. And also for the EU, this is you know, possibly the biggest success of European foreign policy, at least in the last 10 or 15 years, but maybe since the end of the Cold War, the, um, apart from the enlargement of the European Union. Um, so it's very important for a small number of foreign policy professionals. But in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's not a big deal. The Iranian market is uh, tiny compared to the American market, which is why all the companies are, are going to pull out if they have to choose between Iran and, and in America. Um, so therefore, that leads to a sort of reluctance to, to uh, destroy an economic model that served us very well in order to get sovereignty over something that doesn't matter very much. What, uh, on the other side, I suppose, um, there are questions about whether Iran is just the, the thin end of the wedge. And if we basically let it happen on Iran, we could see it happen on Russia next. Um, and then, you know, on other, every country that, 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 that Trump decides he doesn't like. Yeah, and I mean, I think Iran, if, if you want, Iran is a test case, right? So at the moment, the Europeans are fighting with the Americans over Iran because every, both sides know um, that what happens there might happen next in another country. Um, Turkey is also important here. You know, you mentioned Russia, very important for the German economy. If the same amount of sanctions that is now uh, targeted against Iran would be targeted against Russia, it would be really messy uh, because many German companies are involved in one way or the other. Um, with exports or investment in Russia, um, so so the so that's really the question: is that a, is that a test case for how we think of the you know, multilateral economic and financial system? And I think to some degree, is it is at least if you believe that what Trump is doing now is not just Trump and he will be gone, gone but it represents some sort of new direction or new insecurity as to which way the US will go, you know, I mean, the, the, the system we are having now worked so well because, because the US basically was the benign hegemon, right? So we, so they provided these goods and, and uh, so, we, so the world was fine, at least the Western world was fine with having one, one infrastructure for all these transactions, you know, no problem for us using the dollar, why, you know, why should we bother creating our own currency here? Um, so if you believe that this is no longer guaranteed, uh, you better be prepared and, and you better pre be prepared and start building your new infrastructure soon because as Sebastian mentioned it takes 
years, um, if not decades. So that's really the question here. And for Germany, it's especially the question because many of the things that would have that needed to be done are uh, are really the opposite of what traditional German foreign economic policy is all about. I.e thinking of ourselves as a big Switzerland, right? We do what we want and it doesn't affect the world. I think there are two dimensions to what we've been talking about so far. One is accepting that interdependence will continue and that therefore, if we're moving towards a situation where that interdependent relationship is subject to brute force, what kind of countermeasures can you take in order to stop yourself being bullied around? And then there is this question of autonomy and creating routes which allow you not even to have that conversation. I think it's quite clear um, from what you were both saying earlier that plan A for everybody would be to maintain a single global infrastructure, <laughs> but to have a sovereign Europe within it that can uh, basically be strong enough to, to make sure that its concerns are taken seriously rather than um, it being sort of dictated to on different issues. Um, and plan B anyway would take quite a long time to get to. I mean, maybe that's an interesting um, way of linking up this question of the sort of countermeasures with the with the German debate that, that Mark you've, you've been writing about in the site because the interesting thing about the Mars article was he opened up this front and it took you know only a few hours for um, Angela Merkel's uh, spokesperson to, to shoot down the idea and to say that this wasn't uh, um, a German government position how do you think the, the debate in Germany is kind of evolving um, around this, both in, on, on those two fronts? And can you maybe just tell us a bit about what you learned when you were doing your reporting about exactly what was going on between the, the Chancellery and the, the, the Foreign Ministry and some of the other players like the Economics Ministry and the Finance Ministry? I think what happened is that the Foreign Ministry really discovered this issue as something they, you know, sovereignty and also the financial dimension of sovereignty and, and they wanted to promote it. So, um, and they came up with this article. It's somehow strange that a foreign minister writes about SWIFT, right? You would think that this is the finance minister's um, task, but Maas took on this because for him it's important. And then, um, as you correctly um, said, it, it's not, I mean, his views are not shared all over the place in the government. And um, so if Mars is once on the one side um, of this spectrum, then the Chancellor would be on the other side and the Finance Ministry and the Economy Ministry would, some, would be somewhere in between. And um, why, doesn't, why, why does the, the, the Chancellery have problems with Mars's approach? It's basically because they believe that they, they believe that the transatlantic partnership is too important in order to, uh, you know, to anger the Americans by creating all this stuff that Mars wants to create. And Merkel is also thinking about security, cooperation, you know, intelligence cooperation. And she believes you cannot really, you cannot really have a fully sovereign Europe. So, so you better, you know, you better, you better don't overdo and overplay your, your hand um, when talking to the US. So she, she would probably be ready to sacrifice the Iranian deal in order to keep some channel open to the US and then not to, not, not to, to um, threaten the relations. Uh, to a way where they were even stuff as intelligence and security cooperation would no, would no longer be um, available to the Europeans. But at, this, at the same time, um, you know, she was part of this process on 
at the beginning of the Iran uh, deal where together with the French and the Brits, they tried to meet a lot of the, the American objections to the JCPOA and to fix it. And rather than responding in kind, Trump took that as an expression of European weakness and has doubled down on, on not just on the um, decision to withdraw from the JCPOA, but to go actively against European companies and to, to in, in the most aggressive way possible. I mean, she yes, you agree. I agree. She, so, so she does support the JCPOA, and she um, and she backed the anti the blocking statute in the on the European level, which basically tells European companies if you follow your sanctions, you can be sued in Europe. But she would only go so far um, because she, on the symbolic level and on the on the level of political rhetoric, she's she's quite strong. Um, but if it comes to concrete measures that would really, you know. Um, challenge um, the Americans. She's probably more on the side of those who are saying, "No, let's let's be cautious here." Whereas Mars probably is more more willing to to, to be um, uh, harder here. And what about this question about the sort of countermeasures? I mean, you, uh, Sebastian, you, um, I think it was you, maybe it was Mark, was talking earlier about um, you know going after um, uh, American executives, um, if European executives are, are threatened with, uh, with certain measures. Um, there's been talk about going after the, the financial and economic interests of the Trump family itself. I think you wrote about that in one of your pieces, um, uh, Mark, um, uh, in Detite. Um, how, uh, both, Sebastian, what do you think is kind of possible in terms of countermeasures if, if, the, if things do escalate? And how much political will do you think there might be to do that, as opposed to trying to get a, a side deal for um, for Europe, which protects the German car industry? I mean, the first question really is, um, how much do you want to retaliate? And usually, I mean, what we know from, from all the strategic thinking also in the Cold War is that you usually try to be proportionate. So if they go after single SWIFT executives, you would have to think of, of something else, you could uh, potentially start saying, well, there are certain individuals who do uh, economic sabotage to the EU by, by doing these things, and then you go put people who are directly involved on that list. So you, you go maybe, I don't know who you, who you have there, um, some people who have followed US orders, and then you would start freezing their assets and so on. And um, like you did for Russia, you don't go after Putin right away, but you go after some people who are somehow involved. Um, the problem, of course, is that uh, we are still a, a state of, of law and order, so we have to follow certain procedures, and you probably would have to get, get some kind of legal basis for that. Um, the other thing, of course, would be that you... That you um, uh, that you then make a regulation, but that that would be already quite quite brutal, um, saying that SWIFT isn't allowed to to deal with countries where um, the government has imposed any sanctions or any any secondary sanctions on SWIFT. So you would basically cut off the U.S. American system from the global SWIFT system, um, which, well, but but again, that 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 would be. Uh, quite quite a hard measure. Uh, the question is always how how far you want to take it. And here's the problem um, that obviously the, the I think the German appetite for um, confrontation is much less than the American appetite. Donald Trump obviously is is pretty reluctant to at least 
uh, react to certain economic incentives. I mean, if you look at his soy, uh, his his tariff war, his trade war, he has accepted that the farmers in his uh, core constituencies that they suffer significantly from this trade war. Um, I don't think the Germans would accept if the government would would go down that path over um, over Iranian sanctions. So I don't think. Uh, they would have the backing of the majority of the government, uh, let's say, to do something which might lead to the German car industry being frozen out of the U.S. market. Yeah, well, that's um, uh, certainly the early uh, reactions to the mask thing seem to, to back that up. Um, <clears throat> we're coming to the end of our time here. I think it's been a really interesting uh, discussion. It'd be interesting maybe just to end by asking the two of you both what you think the developments over the next few months um, uh, might be which could really push this debate forward and, and take it from being a kind of academic uh, discussion to one with real policy implications. And secondly, what you think, uh, if you were advising European policymakers, what are the most urgent steps for them to take um, if they were serious about doing European sovereignty? about advancing European sovereignty, or getting it, being sovereign, I suppose. Mark, do you want to go first? Um, in, in terms of how will things play out, um, there is a work program in, in the German government, also in the, on the EU level, on financial sovereignty. So there will be, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that at some point there will be proposals and papers and leaks on, on which measures might underpin um, this, um, without being too concrete about it, I think there will be, we will see the dis discussion evolving here. Um, everyone, I think, understood or has understood that this is important um, and you need to be prepared. And um, if I was an advisor, what I would advise, you know, you have to first things first, you have to first um, understand this or frame this as a policy. We, we don't have a policy, we don't have a euro as a reserve currency policy at the moment, it just doesn't exist. So, you know, get together, think about what your goals are, um, you know, strategic goals, economic goals, and how, how they interact or do, or do not interact. And then, and then um, frame a policy, and then uh, let's, go, let's talk about measures and so on. So this, it's important that this is understood as an important aspect of sovereignty, not, not, not only military and political, but also financial. Um, and this is what I would advise if I was an advisor. Yeah, I also uh, would probably come up with the same advice as, as Mark uh, is been doing. You have first to, to bring everyone on the same page. You have to make sure that everyone understands that it's important. And then you have to start to, to come up with a strategy as at least to isolate you from, from, from the worst impacts. Maybe you can design some, some measures. Um, you can leak them to the press, especially if you have certain uh, business interest or even organizational interest, which, which you might target. Uh, then it's always helpful that you uh, give them some indication that they, that, that might be heard and they can then, um, well, put some pressure on, on Donald Trump. On your question, what I think what will happen, um, I would assume that if Donald Trump really follows through with these things on Iran, um, probably SWIFT and the Europeans, they will just follow through, cut off Iran of the global trading and financial system, and um, they won't do much because they, they are not, not ready for this confrontation. Okay, well, that's quite a, a sort of downbeat end to the discussion. Um, we will be carrying on uh, examining this topic in different ways. We're doing a lot of research with ECFR, but I'm sure we'll carry on with these podcasts as well. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thanks a lot to both of you for 
for moving it forward. Um, can we just end with the last thing we have to do with this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment? Mark, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I'm, I'm reading Adam Tooze's Crashed. Uh, so his history of 10 years of financial crisis and how that changed the political order. And I can really recommend it. <laughs> um, I'm reading Julia Pearl's The Book of Why, who is an AI expert and, well, I think a mathematician. And he has written a book on causality and how to identify causality and why the human brain is wired to think in causality and computers are not. Wow, you guys are, are definitely going deeper than I'm going to go with my recommendations. I'm instead just going to do some log rolling on your behalf. There's some great, if you're interested in the things we've been talking about, um, there is a fantastic piece by Sebastian Dulin on our website about the mass speech. Um, and I also recommend a couple of really interesting pieces that Mark Sheehertz has written for the site. One called Vec von Dollar, which I mentioned earlier on, which goes into some depth on all of the discussions we've been talking about. And then there's another one called Es reicht, it's enough, um, which is about the, the kind of internal uh, German uh, politicking around it. Um, we'll put links out to all these things on our websites. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please do um, rush straight to the iTunes page and give us a five-star review and, um, uh, and, and rating and uh, let your friends know about it through uh, social media. Um, <clears throat> we are still trying to crowdsource some um, uh, recommendations for the bookshelf segment, so do write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu if you have any recommendations and also if you have uh, reactions or ideas on this topic of European sovereignty. But for now, from Mark Schieritz, Sebastian Dulin and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hartenbosch and our editor is Katarina Botel-Atinaro. Mm-hmm.